Good morning, church. Would you take your copy of God's Word this morning and turn to Luke chapter 2? It's where we find ourselves this morning. I'd like to offer my thanks to Jeremy for aptly handling the text last week. It was a blessing to join with you all live stream and get to hear that portion of the Word of God from our brother. This morning we'll be looking at the birth of Christ in Bethlehem, the first seven verses of Luke chapter 2. And if you'll follow along with me now, remembering as I read that these are the words of the Lord. Now it happened that in those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus for a census to be taken of all the inhabited earth. This was the first census taken while Quirinius was governor of Syria. And everyone was going to be registered for the census, each to his own city. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the city of Nazareth, to, Judah, or to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and family of David, in order to be registered along with Mary, who was betrothed to him and was with child. Now it happened that while they were there, the days were fulfilled for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son. She wrapped him in cloths and laid him in a manger, because there was no place for them in the guest room. And thus far is the reading of the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. And as we always do, we'll begin with a time of prayer asking God's blessing on the preaching hour. Father, as we come to this time, every week we come as a people who are hungry. We are hungry for your word that can nourish us in a way that nothing else in the universe can. We desire to see Christ, to savor Christ, that he would be first in our hearts. And Lord, for many of us, we sense that over this last week, that has not been the case. But here now, during this time, as your word is opened up, you so often work the miracle of drawing our hearts back to Christ through repentance and faith. Do that this morning, even in a very familiar passage of Scripture, which most of us read several times each year. Please, open the word of God to our eyes that we might feast on Christ, making him first in our lives again this day. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. One of the concepts that is commonly misunderstood by Western readers of the Scriptures is the way in which the ancient world understood time and the passage of time. The Greeks, for example, had multiple words to describe the concept of the passage of time compared to our one word, simply time, hence our confusion and misunderstanding. Kronos is probably the most familiar of those Greek words to you. It's the normal succession of moments, the one thing which is followed by the next thing, followed by the next thing, so on and so forth. Stated as a question, we can say that Kronos is asked in the question, what time is it? What time is it? Another important Greek time word 
is the word kairos, which refers to a moment of particular significance in history. We speak this way when we ask a different kind of question. Do you remember the time when so on and so forth happened? R.C. Sproul describes the difference between chronos and kairos by using the English words historical and historic. He says, everything that happens in God's plan is a historical moment, but not everything is a historic moment. For example, and I just came up with this as an example, as an adopted son of Pharaoh, Moses at some point was taught the customs of Egyptian royalty. That is a historical fact. It had to happen. Moses was raised in Pharaoh's house. He was taught those customs. But when God commanded Moses to lead the people out of Egypt, it was more than just history. It was historic. It was a, a moment to remember. Now, if you'll follow me for just a bit further, and let's broaden this kind of thought experiment of time out, in which we could cover all of time, all of human history from creation to consummation. And you take all of the historic moments in God's grand narrative of the cosmos, and you line them up one by one, all of the memorable moments. Is there anything more significant than a kairos moment? The, you remember the time when one of those kind of moments. Is there anything greater than a historic event? And in Greek, there is. It is the noun pleroma, and it is used in Galatians 4 to describe a time above every other time, a moment that rules every other moment. Paul, having just reminded the church of their prior enslavement to the elemental spirits of the world, reveals to them that God sent forth His Son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive the adoption as sons. Well, the question is, when did He do that? Verse 4 again. He stated, when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son. This is the pleroma, the moment of all moments. Not a typical point on the historical timeline and not even a notable mark on that time. The one moment that everything prior to was driving towards and from thereafter every moment would look back to as the wellspring of all the glory that was to follow. Now I know this morning's text is familiar to all of us. You hear it every single year when you watch the Charlie Brown Christmas story. But don't let familiarity breed any contempt, beloved. What you are looking at this morning is the point at which the entire biblical narrative completely makes a turn. This is the fullness of time. This is the beginning of God's rescue of the world through the Son, Jesus Christ. Now, I'm going to divide this passage up into three parts. In verses 1 through 3, we're going to see Luke's history surrounding the birth of Christ. In verses 4 and 5, we'll see the journey of Mary and Joseph to the birth of Christ. And then in verses 6 and 7, we will reach the fullness of time 
in witnessing the birth of Jesus Christ. Well, let's look at that first section together. Verses 1 through 3. These first three verses of chapter 2, Luke intends for one purpose for us. He here claims that the birth of Jesus Christ took place inside of actual, real human history. In the LSB translation, verse 1 goes like this. Now it happened that in those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus for a census to be taken of all the inhabited earth. During the days shortly after the birth of John the Baptist, a decree went out from a really significant earthly ruler, Caesar Augustus. You've heard his name many times. He was the emperor of Rome around the turn of the ages from B.C. into A.D. He is one of the most widely recognized figures of the B.C. era. Up to this point, depending on how you measure it, no earthly king had ever held the amount of power that Caesar Augustus held. His real name was actually Octavian, and he was the great-nephew of Julius Caesar. After the murder of Julius, Octavian was named the chief heir to the throne of Rome. But he ruled Rome in a triumvirate alongside Mark Anthony and Lepidus. It would not be long before those two latter men fell from their power, and the Roman Senate would elect Octavian as the sole emperor in 27 BC. He would go on to rule until 14 AD when he passed away and was succeeded by Tiberius Caesar, who we'll see in just one more chapter, chapter 3, verse 1. He governed Rome during the teaching ministry of Jesus, that is Tiberius Caesar. Now let me just stop and say that if Luke was intending to deceive anybody into believing his little Jesus myth, as it's stupidly claimed today, why would he take the time to place the narrative of Jesus inside such stringent historical bounds? He makes no sense. Luke gets even more specific than just Tiberius Caesar. We kind of ratchet in just a little bit further in verses... Uh, the second half of verse 1 into verse 2. A decree went out for a census to be taken of all the inhabited earth. This was the first census taken while Quirinius was governor of Syria. Quirinius is no obscure man in annals of history either. A citizen of Rome and a high-ranking military officer, he was both a skilled administrator and a seasoned soldier. He led successful campaigns in the territory of Galatia and was appointed a legate over Syria to rule after Herod's son Archelaus was deposed in AD 6. Now just stop and consider that for a moment. In AD 6, you might be thinking, well, if he was appointed at that point, wouldn't that be too late for him to be the governor of Syria during the census when Joseph and Mary were to travel to Bethlehem to be registered? This is one of those moments in the scriptures where the experts misread something in the text and wrongly conclude that Luke doesn't know what he's talking about, and therefore the scriptures must be bunk. I think that most biblical scholars of the Old Testament do this in the Exodus narrative, wrongly placing the dating of the Exodus and Moses' activities 
in the book of Exodus during the days of Pharaoh Ramses. There's just one mention in Exodus of the Hebrew people being forced as slaves to build the store cities Python and Ramses. And immediately biblical scholars say, oh, it must have been during the days of Ramses because they mentioned a city named Ramses. And then they get way off on a tangent, and the dates get all messed up, and then they say, Moses couldn't have lived during this time because none of this ever happened, and you know how it goes. Well, back to Luke. The poor guy is just trying to set the historical stage, and like Monday morning quarterbacks, we sit here and judge the Word of God according to our limited understanding of a few words taken out of context. The long and the short of it is that Quirinius's duties in Syria were more extensive than just his stint as a legate in A.D. 6 and then following. Another we, issue that we run into is that the Gregorian and Julian calendars um, don't mesh well, and so the dating that we have for the transition period from B.C. to A.D. is actually off according to our current calendars. You can imagine how that also causes confusion. At least for apologetic purposes, you should all be aware of this one fact, beloved, and this may be the most shocking thing that I say for some of you this morning. Jesus was not born in A.D. 0. Okay? Jesus was not born at the very, very end of B.C. and the very, very start of A.D. He was not born in A.D. 0. He was actually born sometime before April, B.C. 4. He was born sometime before April, B.C. 4. Now that may, may be a doozy for you to wrap your mind around this morning. Jesus Christ was born before Christ. There you have it. That's what happens when you leave the dating up to human beings. We get things wrong, okay? But let me get back to Luke's point in these first three verses of our text this morning. The birth of Jesus Christ did happen in human history regarding of how we have chosen to date the passage of history. It happened in front of real people who witnessed with their eyes the God-man come to earth and walk the earth and die for sinful men. If you're wanting to deceive people, as some claim that Luke is trying to do here, Luke 2 is the most contested historical passage in all of the Gospel of Luke. This passage right here that we're looking at this morning, especially the controversy surrounding Quirinius. It's the most controversial passage according to most scholars. But if Luke was trying to deceive, why would he have not just been more ambiguous about the time frame? I mean, the, the, the level of detail that he presents here is unprecedented in the ancient world, especially in a story claiming to know of a time when God actually visited humankind. In, in stories like that, they're usually very vague and very broad, and there was once upon a time when so on and so forth happened. And the claim is frequently made by liberal academics and mushy evangelic intellectuals that the story of Christ is just a repackaging of the old dying and rising God stories. It's just another one of those. Or it's the early church, because of the persecution of Rome, trying to harmonize with the Roman God stories. You see, they were under so much persecution that they just wanted to come up with some way to blend the story so maybe they wouldn't look so bad 
to the Romans. By the way, the reason that Christians were hated by the Romans was not because they believed that Jesus Christ was a God. It was because they believed that Jesus Christ was the only God. That's the reason that the Romans hated the Christians. They didn't mind Jesus standing alongside Zeus and Jupiter and all the other gods out there the Greeks and the Romans had. It's the fact that they said, no, there is no other God but our Jesus. That's what bothered them. That's what made them so furious. The incessant assault on the Bible today is known as the history of religions movement. According to Dr. James White, the history of religions movement is nothing more than taking Darwinian evolutionary theory and applying it to the development of religion. Well, see, one guy had this idea, and then the next group of people developed this idea and kind of added to it, and then the next group did this and changed the names and so on and so forth, and the history of religions movement. Nothing can truly be unique. Everything has to be based on something else that happened in the past. The story, the story of Jesus is just a Christian cover of a song that's already been written and played. Now, I don't want to get too far into the weeds on this. I want to continue on with the text. But let me briefly mention one of these history of religions movement ideas to you, since we're right here, and this is one of those challenging passages. This is called the Horus-Jesus connection. Horus was an Egyptian god who was born of the virgin goddess Isis in a cave on December the 25th, a star in the east having previously announced his birth. He was visited by three wise men. He had an earthly father named Seb, which translates to Joseph. He was baptized by Anuk, the baptizer. He had 12 disciples. He performed many miracles, including walking on water and raising Osiris from the dead. He was crucified between two thieves, was buried, and later resurrected. He was also called Christ, the Anointed One, the Way, the Truth, and the Life, the Messiah. And all of this, it's claimed, was written down in story form before Jesus ever came to earth. Most of this content was featured at the beginning of a 2000s movie called the Zeitgeist movie. Now, if that's true, if even a portion of that is true, it would pose a serious problem for the gospel of Jesus Christ. The thing is, and I'm sure you've already come to this conclusion in your own mind, none of the Horace-Jesus connection is even remotely close to being true. None of it is. For example, in Egyptian mythology, there weren't many virgin goddesses, okay? Those girls, you know, got around. And so where did this idea of the Horace-Jesus connection come from? It came from a leftist historical revisionist expert who wrote a book, got some coverage, and it was made into a movie. And weak-minded Christians who get most of their shepherding from Netflix movies be, are loaded up with doubts and fears about their faith. Let me say something to the children this morning. Children, I'm particularly talking to you, though, for adults, this is helpful to remember. If there were legitimate objections to the validity of what you see in front of you right now in the pages of Scripture, you would have heard about it already. This world hates Christ, 
they would jump at the chance to hold up even a shred of evidence that Jesus isn't who he said he was and did exactly what he said he did. But at this point, they have none. No legitimate claims have been laid against the authority of the Bible that can actually assault and even undermine the Bible's claims. Jesus came, just as Luke said, during the reign of Augustus Caesar. No true historian actually objects to that. They all agree. And at the time of a census issued when Quirinius was serving official capacity over Syria. But, and I will pause just for one more moment and, and say this. For all of Luke's specificity, he does leave us with some open questions. Like, for example, what date was Jesus actually born on? That's a question that most of us have wondered. Why do we celebrate Christmas on the day that we celebrate it on? What time of day was Jesus born? Was he born in the middle of the night, in the manger, because you can see the star in the sky? Was he born in the daytime? Does anybody know his birth weight or measurements? Now, I know at some point it gets a little silly. You start asking questions like this. The Lord Jesus was born in a manger at 3.33 a.m. on the morning of December the 25th, coming in at 7.77 pounds and a perfect 20 inches long. Mary is recovering nicely. Okay. You can imagine seeing a clip like that in the newspaper or something. No, Mary didn't have a scale and a tape measure, and Joseph wasn't watching the red digital clock on the hospital delivery room wall. However, all the same, I do find it interesting that we don't, at the very least, have a day. The Lord did not see in his wisdom and in his providence and in his kindness to us to actually give us the exact day that it happened on. Every year, Christmas rolls around. And in good Christian circles where there's healthy debate going on, there's a variety of views and ideas, the age-old debate about whether or not we should celebrate the advent of Christ usually gets stirred up at some point. Why do we celebrate Christmas on December the 25th? Why do some people in the world celebrate it on January the 6th? Should we even celebrate the birth of Jesus at all? Now, let me say a few things on this point. First, we do actually have a pretty good idea of when Jesus was born. Back in chapter 1 of Luke, I mentioned that Zechariah was of the order of Abijah. Because of the outline given in the book of Chronicles for when the priests were to serve by their divisions and the additional records we have of the rotation dates of those priests that when they served those different divisional times, we know within about two weeks' time exactly when Zechariah was in the temple. And from there, you can follow that Elizabeth gets pregnant. And from that, you can follow when Mary got pregnant. And if you trace all of that out, and I can assure you that this research has been done, there's an, a laborious amount of research that has gone into this, it lands you at a date somewhere between December the 25th and January the 6th, which is exactly 12 days, which is exactly where we get the 12 days of Christmas. The early church had this nailed down in the second century A.D. The Western church favored the earlier date, 
the Roman church typically celebrated the 25th, whereas the Eastern church favored the later date. They would celebrate Christmas on January the 6th, so they just turned it into a feast of weeks, and everybody celebrated from the 25th to the 6th. Now, we are... <laughs> Amen. We are commanded not to... This is the second thing that I want to mention. We are commanded not to pass judgment on one another for deeply held convictions on holiday practices. Romans 14.5, one person judges one day above another, and another regards every day alike. Each person must be fully convinced in his own mind. If that family in this church, the one that you're maybe thinking of right now, they're the ones that do the big Christmas celebration. Or perhaps they, even around Easter time, will hide eggs and let their kids go find Easter eggs. Or maybe they shoot off Independence Day fireworks. Or maybe they even wage a soft war of cultural appropriation through holidays like St. Patrick's Day or Cinco de Mayo. Shots fired. And you won't have any of it because of your family's deeply held personal Christian convictions. You are still covenantally bound to love and serve them within this local body of Christ. You are still to fellowship with them. You're to pray for them. You're to visit them if they are sick. Pursue them with dis discipline if they walk in open sin. If they don't see eye to eye with you on this particular issue of holidays... Paul did not say, stay away, be on your guard, you have permission to not fellowship. Instead, he said, let us pursue the things that make for peace. So they don't do Christmas, and you do. Have them over for dinner, dinner anyway, and sing some psalms instead of Christmas carols. You refuse to celebrate holidays. I would ask you then, what are you celebrating and with whom? The higher burden is on the person who sees all days alike because they have to celebrate Christ every day because every day is alike. So I've got to rejoice always in the Lord. So I've always got to be celebrating Christ. It's not an excuse to say no days are special, therefore I don't ever have to get excited about anything that I read in the Scriptures. And this gets me to my last point. We do not have an explicit command in the Bible that we must celebrate the incarnation of the Messiah. We also don't have a command to set aside one day a year to celebrate the resurrection either. Most churches do. But this moment, this event, at this time, is the fullness of time. As Paul said in Galatians 4, this is the time above all times, the time when God came down to earth in the body of a man to rescue the damned bodies and souls of his people from the judgment day to come and the consuming fires of unending hell. Now, why would you not want to celebrate that? It's not a commandment. It's a gift. It's not a got to. It's a get to. To gather with the saints here in Anderson County and eat a delicious meal and drink something merry and recount in story the song and great deeds of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. It's not a got to. It's a get to. The real concern here is that a proud heart would hide behind the moniker of I'm the weaker brother or I'm the stronger brother. And they would avoid any worship of Jesus Christ through their 
legal standard. I have no real joy in my heart, no love for Christ, and certainly no interest in celebrating anything like Christmas. So I'll just go with God didn't say that I had to. And so I excuse myself from worshiping the Lord Jesus. If to you all days are alike, then all days should be filled with the joy of celebrating the Lord. You should set an example for the body of Christ for spontaneous jubilation in the Lord. I like Ezra's perspective from Nehemiah 8. On the day when God was restoring them again to the covenant, Ezra said to them, Go, eat the fat, and drink of the sweet, and send portions to him who has nothing prepared. For this day is holy to our Lord. Do not be grieved, for the joy of Yahweh is your strength. And that's from Nehemiah chapter 8, verse 10. Our celebration of Christ, in whatever form it takes, should set the tone of joy for the city of Clinton, Tennessee. Whether it's a holiday or it's not a holiday, do the people of this city see the members of Christ the King with their families celebrating the risen King Jesus who came to save mankind from their sins? Is this true of us? This ought to be our evangelistic message that we are excited and joyful about our risen King and we celebrate Him even if it's not in season. We find reason to celebrate Christ. Now let's look at this next section. Mary and Joseph taking the journey to Bethlehem. And Joseph, verse 4, went up also from Galilee, from the city of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and family of David. I mentioned several weeks ago that this trip would have taken about three to four days. And there's no mention of a donkey. Mary was basically full term. This was about a 90-mile journey, assuming they took the Sumerian bypass. It's little wonder that by the time they arrive, before Joseph can even secure a place for them to stay, Mary's already in labor. Before we get there, however, there's something else that I think Luke wants us to see here, something even more substantial than the circumstances surrounding their journey from the north to the south. And that is the connection that you see Luke endeavoring to make, tying Jesus to the lineage of King David, from Galilee, from Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, because Joseph was of the house and family of David. Now Luke doesn't want us to miss this. This family, though they come from Nazareth, this young woman carries the heir to David's throne. This isn't going to be the fullness of time event if we get all of the prophecies of the Old Testament wrong. Remember, remember Gabriel's words from several weeks ago in the passage on the Annunciation. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord will give him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever and there will be no end to his kingdom. If you're Theophilus and you're sitting here reading through this, it matters to you that Jesus is fulfilling all of these prophecies. That matters just as much as the historical events surrounding the birth of Christ. We've got the history right, but what about those prophecies? Does Jesus actually line up with everything the Old Testament said that he would be? It matters more to Theophilus 
than whether or not it snowed on the journey down. That matters to some painters, but not to him. Or whether or not Joseph got tired of walking along the way. Or whether Mary's water broke on the donkey's saddle, assuming that there was a donkey. He wants to know that this is the man whom God had always promised. And Luke is making that connection. It's as if Luke is saying, Gabriel said that he would sit on the throne of David. Now look, this one comes from David. You can see it right here. From David to be registered in this city, in David's town. Luke doesn't mention Micah 5.2 as Matthew does. But were Theophilus nominally associated with the Jewish scriptures, you can bet it was on his mind. But as for you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you one will go forth from me to be ruler in Israel. His goings forth are from everlasting, from the ancient of days. Bethlehem, a city that prior to its conquering in the times of King David was known as the city of war. And with the change of a single Hebrew letter, it became city of bread and city of peace. Now consider that it was the city of bread to which the bread of life came. Consider that the shabby, too little to be among the clans of Judah town, the one that is called city of peace, it was there that the infant flesh of the prince of peace would first touch the earth. And God's providence brought about all of these events. All of this. And it's here written down so Theophilus can know and have assurance of what he's been taught. And the same is true for you, beloved. Caesar Augustus comes to power. He's the most politically potent and militarily bolstered man ever to walk the earth. But God moves his heart like a stream of water wherever he wills to get Joseph on a journey and have Mary birth the Messiah in Bethlehem of Judah in fulfillment of all the prophecies. Here's another thing to consider. The emperor of Rome, who at one point during his reign, Augustus Caesar, took the title Dominus et Deus, which is Latin for Lord and God. He's exercising his lordship over all the peoples of the earth to move and register and ultimately get them ready for some new taxes that he's about to hand down. Contrast that Caesar Augustus with Joseph that you see here in verses 4 and 5. Small town boy, but a righteous man. When he found out that Mary was pregnant, he intended the right thing. Matthew 1.19 says that he was going to put her away quietly, divorce her quietly, ending the legally binding betrothal period that they had both engaged in. Of course, when he met the angel, he changed his mind. And unlike Zechariah, he was immediately obedient to the angel to take Mary as his wife. Regardless of the criticism, he knew that it would face because of her pregnancy. And then he obeys this order to go and be registered in his hometown. Caesar is God's pawn to bring about the fullness of time. And so is Joseph. But one of those two men did it as a worthy descendant of King David, and the other as a sire of the devil. Christ the King, it's no secret here that we are trying to revive a biblical patriarchy in the church and in the home. Brothers, 
Can I encourage you with this? Would you like a picture of a true patriarch of God? Look to a man like Joseph. If you drive full throttle into the rule of men movement that we hear a lot about today, and we forget the basic Christian tenet that our Lord came to serve, we as men claiming to be rulers of our home will only be an absolutist, a despot, and a tyrant. If you love this church because of the patriarchy and not for Christ, you will go to hell for that. Unless you repent. Brothers, you were created to lead. And God gave you all that power and authority so that you can love and care for those people in your charge. Nobody with an ounce of sanity questions whether or not the shepherd leads the sheep. But the scripture reminds us that the good shepherd is not the one who just leads, but the one who lays down his life for his sheep. Did you know that there are men in the patriarchy movement right now arguing for the resumption and perpetuation of polygamy? That's right. They call themselves Christian patriarchists. I'm not talking about Mormons. I'm not talking about atheists. I'm not talking about men who have gone their own way. I'm talking about men who claim reformed Christianity, who have come completely unhitched from the Bible so as to embrace patriarchy in all of its crazy forms. They do this without any regard to the scriptural command that a man leaves his parents and is joined to a woman and the two become one flesh, God's design for marriage. No, no. They postulate, if it worked for Abraham and Jacob and David, it can and should work for us too. Breaking news, this just in. It didn't work for Abraham and Jacob and David. Read your Bible. Ah, Brothers, if you're going to be a patriarch that God has called you to be, the one that God designed you to be. You cannot jettison the humility that Peter said all of us should clothe ourselves with. I love Joseph. I've always loved his quiet narrative. I love how he serves. I love how he just does what has to be done. He's a godly husband to Mary. He's a father of his children, though we don't hear much about his his activities in the life of Jesus as Jesus grows, just a small snippet. I bet you didn't know at the beginning of this sermon half the things that I told you about Caesar Augustus. One of the most widely recognizable figures in human history. And you probably didn't know most of the things that I, I shared with you. How many of you in here have heard of the character and humility and love of Joseph. Most of us have. How many women in here love how he loved and cared for Mary? Make no mistake, he led her. How many of your wives, men, would follow you on foot or on a donkey across three to four days of wilderness while they are nine months pregnant for a trip that they could have stayed home from? Which, by the way, is a legitimate question. Why didn't Mary stay home? Joseph had to go register. He's the head of the house. He didn't have to take Mary along. 
you can surmise some reasons. I mean, at this point they hadn't come together, but there's all this speculation and conspiracy about what actually happened between Mary and Joseph and why she's pregnant. If he leaves her behind, she can have the baby by herself with no one to help her because she's kind of a pariah. And he wants to protect her from criticism. As a righteous man, he cared for her. Hey, think about this too. How much of the inspired scripture of God did Joseph with his mouth utter? Nothing. He said not one word of inspired scripture. Mary uttered many words of divine revelation. Yet this man was chosen by God to lead as an earthly father the Son of God who created him. What a powerful calling. Brothers, are you eager to start leading your wife? I ask you, have you forgotten to love her? To pursue her, listen to her, ask her about her health, how she's dealing with the children, her homeschooling schedule, her fears, and the future, and what makes her anxious about life right now? Are you bringing in enough to provide for her needs and the needs of your children? Does she feel the freedom to take them to the doctor if needed? Or to beautify your home without you crabbing every time about the budget? Do you spend time talking with her in the evenings, even about things you already know about, but about things you haven't discussed with her? Because she cares just as much, perhaps more, for the conversation than the facts that actually make up the conversation. If you are a stone-faced patriarchist, Warning, brothers, if you're the kind of shut up and get in the kitchen kind of leader demeanor, you are taking on the mantle of a patriarch, but you are denying its power. If you are requiring the form of obedience without the response of yourself joyfully using your power to serve, to provide for and protect your family, your wife, you are no patriarch. You're just a bully, plain and simple. You're likely to be the kind of curmudgeon that won't decorate a tree or sit down and watch a movie with your kids. Brothers, repent of how you have fallen short here. And as part of your leadership, pursue your wife. Pursue her. Put this before your eyes. Be the kind of man for your spouse and your children that the father would have been happy to leave his son with. By the power of the Holy Spirit, every man in here is designed and called by God to do that very thing and can. Now I want to move to the last two verses this morning. Looking at the events surrounding the fullness of time, the birth of Jesus. In verse 6, it happened that while they were there in Bethlehem, the days were fulfilled for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son. She wrapped him in cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the guest room. So much has been said already about these short two verses. What more can we say? For our purposes this morning, consider what Luke is not communicating here. He is not communicating that Mary and Joseph raced into town, Mary trying to hold the baby in, they're scrambling for a place to stay. They're too 
poor to afford lodging. That's why they weren't welcome anywhere. That the innkeeper was some kind of troll to deal with. Or that Mary had a completely painless childbirth. See dumb Catholic ideas. Most of those things that I just mentioned originated from the contemporary cultural imagination. They're nowhere grounded in the text. I don't know, it might be offensive to some people here that Mary and Joseph weren't refused by an innkeeper. There's no mention of an innkeeper in the text. In fact, it doesn't even say in the Greek that they stayed at an inn. The LSB, I think, uses the appropriate word. CSB uses the same. A guest room. This was either a community lodging house for travelers. You can think of like a, a public bed and breakfast, so to speak. Or it's also possible... And I think this is more likely that Mary and Joseph were staying with relatives of Joseph's in Bethlehem. But upon their arrival, the home was already full of guests. There was a lot of people coming to the census to be registered in this town. And it's likely that Joseph was taking the trip a little slow because Mary was pregnant. She was trying to go easy on her. And so they got there last. And there was no room for them in the main level of the building. So there was a subfloor underneath where the animals were kept. And that's where... Mary and Joseph likely stayed. Now with all the nostalgia surrounding Christmas and the Nativity, it may seem a bit lackluster to you that this is all we get. There's so many songs that we sing around Christmas time that have no grounds or basis in Scripture, but we're so fond of them. It's just nostalgic moments, the innkeeper, the drummer boy, you know, those sorts of things. And, and, and we come around every Christmas, and there's devotional books that are written, and you wonder sometimes, are we, are we being told everything? Can we, can we find out a little bit more about the story of Jesus' birth? Last year, I read uh, one individual's investigation into the birth narrative that takes place at the beginning of Matthew and Luke, and it, it pins the location of the advent of Christ right next to the next passage, which is uh, the Shepherd Hills right outside of Bethlehem. And of course, there's reason to believe that that was the case. But those particular shepherds, this person asserts, were charged with raising the flocks for the temple sacrifice. As the story goes, when a lamb was born in this birth stall area, likely where Mary and Joseph were, it's argued here, if that lamb was found to be without spot or blemish, it would be wrapped in swaddling cloths to protect it from injury. And henceforth, it would be raised as a lamb being prepared for slaughter. Now, if you've never heard that story before, it sounds too good to not be true. Like, surely that's actually what happened. I mean, that's, God tells the greatest stories, right? I, I can't think of a better way to lay it out than that. Well, in fact, you can. You're looking at it right in front of you. Luke gave us all of the information we need through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. I warn you, beloved, not to go beyond what is written so that no one will become puffed up on behalf of one against another. 1 Corinthians 4, verse 6. That story, as good as it sounds, is pure conjecture. We don't know for sure because it's not divinely inspired in the Word of God. One thing that I see in this passage that Luke mentions explicitly in the text, and I've not heard many people dive into this, 
is in verse 7, it said that Mary gave birth to her firstborn son. I understand that in Greek, this statement can be made even more emphatically. She gave birth to her son, the firstborn one. Now, let's just slow down on that phrase for a minute. Is Luke indicating that Mary had other children after Jesus? Well, that is a fact, a historical fact. She did have other children after Jesus, and we learned that in the other Gospels. Or is Luke referring to Jesus' right as the firstborn son to the benefits of the inheritance of the family? That is also true. He would have been entitled to those rights, a double portion among his family's estate. Or is he continuing to stress the rights of kingship in connection to the throne of David? Based on the context, it's hard to see how that's not in his view. Jesus, the firstborn one. As the firstborn, I mentioned, he would automatically have the place of preeminence in the family, right after the father. He would thereby receive the double portion of the family inheritance, and the lineage and name of the house would be perpetuated through his line. But for just a minute, if you still have your Bibles open in front of you, let your eyes glance down to verse 23 of Luke chapter 2. This is during the time when Jesus was presented at the temple, and it stated that every firstborn male that opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord. Consider that for a minute, holy to the Lord. This phrase comes from Exodus 13 verse 2, right on the heels of the people's deliverance from their bondage in Egypt, right on the heels of the plastering of the blood over the doorway, the destroying angel passing by each of those homes to not destroy the firstborn son. And here we have Mary's son, the firstborn one, delivered from this destroying angel's sword, delivering his people from that same sword, He's the head of the family to lead them in an exodus out of Egypt and deliver them from their sins. All of the firstborns in Scripture, when seen rightly, are just types. Jesus is the final antitype. He is the final, if you will, firstborn. Consider Jesus' status as firstborn in the rest of the Scriptures. Paul said that Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. Now what firstborn son has ever had anything remotely close to that spoken about them? And from Hebrews chapter 1 verse 6, when the father again brings the firstborn, that is Christ, into the world, he says, and let all the angels of God worship him. Not only is he first and preeminent above all creation, he is worshiped by his creation. Romans 8.29, because those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, so that he, that is Jesus, would be the firstborn among many brothers. After millions and millions of firstborn sons, Jesus is the actual firstborn. Even those who came before him were in a sense, if they be in Christ, born after him, Abraham was born before Jesus, but Jesus was born before Abraham. And Christ, from Colossians 1.18, 
is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he himself, hear this, probably the most important statement about Jesus' inheritance of being the firstborn, the firstborn from the dead, so that he himself will come to have first place in everything. Now that ought to make you want to celebrate Christmas. The first and greatest birthday ever for King Jesus. I ask you this morning, church, in light of what Luke has said here and what we find in the rest of the pages of Scripture, it is evident that Christ will in fact come to have first place in everything. So, the question logically follows, is He first place for you? This advent of Jesus is the moment of moments, the hour above all others, the preordained time of times when God's created body did touch the earth and the beachhead of God's militant rescue of fallen humanity through the power of God began and was established. And it will end with Jesus first as Lord of all. He shall have dominion, but church, I ask you, is He first for you? There are some of you sitting here who have never given one thought of thanksgiving to Jesus for His salvation work. His Lordship means nothing to you. He has never been king at any point in your life because you love your sin more than you love Jesus. Your firstborn, your preeminent one is yourself, your idols, your lusts. You care nothing for the things of God. But even now, because of this Jesus born in the manger, there is hope for you. Lost person, this Christ who came to earth was not just the firstborn of all reborn men, but their perfect and final paschal lamb. The one sacrifice of God for the sins of all who would venture by faith to believe on Jesus alone for salvation. Lost person, why delay any longer? Are you waiting for others to come to Christ? Don't. Just come to Christ now. Are you waiting on a feeling? Many who waited for a feeling are feeling the fires of hell today. Don't, for any reason that you can think of, wait any longer. Come to Christ. Repent and turn away from your sin and turn to Jesus and be saved. For those of you who are in Christ today, but you feel as if He has rarely, if ever, been acknowledged as first in your life. Do you believe, beloved, do you believe this? That your repentance at this very moment, even while I'm still speaking, will, not can, but will prepare the way for the full enthronement of Christ in your life. Right now, this very moment, repentance will prepare the way for Christ in your life. It must. It necessarily must. It does only that. Can He work the greatest creative miracles by creating a human body for the Son of God, not work through the Spirit of God in your heart to bring Christ in the very place that He promised to bring Him in you? And that is first. Just as Paul told the Colossians, first in everything, including first in each of our hearts. He already promised that Christ would be first. Believe now that at this moment, Jesus can take the throne in your heart. And by the Spirit and regular repentance, He stays there. The fullness of time has come and gone. 
This moment when Jesus came to earth. It's already in the history books. But each of you, were you estranged from, estranged from the Lord by sin or unbelief, today can cease from letting chronos, that is time, pass you by, and through repentance establish a kairos, a moment in time, when Jesus was put first in your life, and from henceforth you followed him more closely. As the Sovereign Grace worship song, Prepare Him Room, has it, O our hearts, as busy as Bethlehem, hear Him knock. Don't say there's no room in the end. Through the cradle, cross, and grave, see the love of God displayed. Now He's risen and He reigns. So church, I say to you this morning, let us together praise the name above all names. Father, we thank You that in the fullness of time You brought forth Your Son that he was born right where he was born. He was born in fulfillment of all of the prophecies. He was born to the parents that he was born to, a man and a woman you entrusted to on earth care for your own son. And he was born for our salvation. And this he did accomplish, living the perfect life and then in the great exchange, dying in our place, trading our sin for his righteousness. Please draw your people to you today through that gospel word, Lord. Bring people to Christ that they may know him and that they may love him, that he be enthroned in their hearts and that they may always, along with all creation, worship him at all times. Please help us who are in Christ to do the same, to set aside, as was prayed this morning in the prayer, our distractions, our sins, our idols, all the things that are keeping us from loving Jesus to the full and help us to love Him, to love Him and serve Him all of our days, beginning today through repentance and faith in greater measure than ever before. We pray this in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen.